the sermon today, the message today, is uh, from the book of Ruth, um, and scripture starting in chapter 1, verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Moving to verse four, or chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian, Redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Thanks, Cindy. Uh, I'm so happy to be in the book of Ruth versus last week in the book of Judges, because if Judges could be described as like gloomy storm clouds, uh, the book of Ruth can be described as a ray of sun piercing through the darkness. And we talked about this last week, but the book of Judges, if you read through it, it can be really depressing. It's all about our frailty, our flaws, our sin, as the Bible calls it. And here now, book, uh, the book of Ruth, the very first verse of the whole book says, in the, in the days when the judges ruled, so it's set in the same context, uh, we have a love story. And it's a love story for, for, ma- uh, for, for many reasons. Um, and it's, a, it's a romantic love story. Uh, Cindy just read, you know, Boaz and Ruth made love together. She's like, do I really have to read that part? Um, she just kept going like a pro. Um, she's going to kill me for that. Um, there's a romantic sort of love, Ruth and her, and her eventual uh, suitor, Boaz. There's the friendship sort of love Ruth, between Ruth and Naomi, uh, her mother-in-law. And then, of course, the, the biggest part of the book is it's a, it's a love story uh, that God not only has for Ruth, but for us. Now, here is my feeling of why this is the coolest thing to be looking at today. Why it's so relevant is uh, the protagonist of our story is an outsider. Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth is an immigrant. Um, And what I love about this story here is it's not just here to say, love the outsider, love the immigrant. Um, It's not just saying, hey, love the Ruths of the world. Actually, no, learn from Ruth. 
I love how God does that. I mean, if we were just to say the story is, hey, we need to love our neighbor, we need to love the outsider, we need to love our immigrants right now, as timely as that message could be uh, seen today, uh, that would be good, that would be strong. But it says, don't just love the Ruth, learn from Ruth. And so there's some really powerful stories here um, where we see God's love for this woman who is a Moabite, which for all that matters, in terms of the Moabites' relationship with the Israelites, I mean, these guys were locking heads. I mean, these guys hated each other, religiously, lifestyle-wise, but just in every respect. And yet, what we see here in the book of Ruth is God not only loves the person who you might think is beyond his reach of love, uh, he actually honors her in amazing ways, and we get to learn from her. And so what we're going to do today is draw out three lessons uh, from the book of Ruth um, and understand how this can impact our lives. Because what I believe uh, we see here is uh, the life-changing power, not only to influence us, change us, but to change those around us, help those around us, and impact even uh, beyond those relationships. There's a lot of power here in the book of Ruth, and it's a beautiful story. So three lessons from the book of Ruth. Uh, the first one uh, that I want to draw our attention to uh, comes in the relationship that we see between Naomi and Ruth. Naomi is her, her mother-in-law. Here's the story. So in the time of Judges, which incidentally, uh, the scholars I was reading said that they believe this to be the exact same time as the, the judge Gideon ruled, which if you were here last week, that was the judge we looked at. So basically the same time as the, as the context of last week. There was this great famine. And what happened was Naomi, with, with her husband and her two boys, they had to leave Bethlehem, which was the city they were from, the tribe of Judah, Israel, and leave for the country of Moab to try to get some food, to try to survive and weather this famine. But not very long into it, it was meant to be a temporary stay, uh, uh, Naomi meets just utter uh, tragedy. Uh, it's not long before she loses her husband, uh, and then a little bit later, after her two boys marry uh, two gals, Orpah and Ruth, whom we'll meet here in a second, uh, she loses those two boys. And, so, and, and it was meant to be just a temporary stay, but she ends up being there for 10 years in the country of Moab. And she's just lost all means of livelihood and any sense of hope for the future. I mean, she's just in a horrible situation. And, and so she hears after this 10-year period, that there's food back in Israel. And so she starts to head back, and Orpah and Ruth, her daughter-in-laws, feeling duty-bound, start out, set out with her to go back with her to uh, Israel and take care of her there. And that's where we pick up the story that, that Cindy read earlier today, this dialogue. And the gist of it is Naomi saying, guys, you can't come. Bless your hearts. I love you. It's incredible that you think to come to me, come with me, take care of me, but you can't come. I mean, I have no way of providing for you. You're leaving everything that you know, everything that's comfortable to you, and you're going to a place, by the way, where they're probably not going to treat you all that well. You guys need to stay. The Lord be with you. Stay. And what we see here, first lesson, is the, the life-changing power of friendship. Um, there's a spiritual power uh, in friendship. Um, Naomi uh, had every right to just kind of say, guys, you can come with me. You feel duty-bound. Keep at that. Uh, stick with me. But she instead is as selfless as can be. She says, guys, there's no hope for me. And if you come with me, you're going to put yourself at great risk. Go. Uh, she loves them with conviction. She says, the Lord be with you. Two times over, she says, the Lord be with you. She recognizes that the Moabites have their own gods, but she says, you know what? The Lord be with you. Go back and, and have a livelihood there. And she also loves them in a not very preachy way. I mean, she could have very easily said, uh, 
you better come with me or else. Or, like a mother-in-law uh, could probably have done, uh, let alone back then, uh, been, you know, you're, you guys are of the Moabite clan, just be gone. None of that. What we see with Naomi is just pouring out her heart. Lord, be with you guys. It's, there's nothing left for me. You guys take care of yourself. Uh, and there's, there's power there. Because on the one hand, we see Orpah, she just kind of, you know, graciously receives that releasing of the, the duty-bound feeling that she had. Kisses uh, Naomi and says, okay, I'm going to go back. Which, you know, I mean, on first glance, I was like, that's pretty messed up considering what R- Ruth does. But it's like, no, actually, that makes the most sense that Orpah would do that. I mean, I, I, we would probably do that, or I would probably do that. Um, what is striking, though, is Ruth's response. Ruth, it says, clung to her. Um, but even more than that, verse 16 says, she, said, she goes on to say, I'll go with you wherever you go. Your God will be my God. In other words, Ruth converts. Ruth becomes a follower of Naomi's God. Now, how does that happen? This is a big change and a tremendous risk to Ruth. Why on earth would she just say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and uh, your, your God's going to become my God. Actually, even more, she, she, talks, he talks, she talks about the Lord intimately. She uses that name. Uh, we have it translated the Lord, but that's the holy name of the Lord behind that word, Yahweh, the great I am. She's claiming a personal, intimate relationship with God, which she probably doesn't realize all that much. Why? Because of Naomi's selfless love for her. This, this conviction of love just to go and put others before. That, Ruth saw enough of that and said, you know what? I might not know all the rest that's there, but I want that. I want him. Uh, they say there are three components into uh, how, we, how and why we form and adopt uh, our faith beliefs. Uh, religious and non-religious, by the way. But this is true of Christianity. There's three components. Uh, there's the intellectual. Uh, is the faith tenable? Uh, is it, is it, can you defend it? Because it doesn't make sense intellectually. Number two, there's the emotional. Does this make sense for me personally? Does it affect me? Does it, in my heart, does that make sense? And then the third, which maybe is a little less straightforward than the first two, is social. We make decisions uh, based on our fa- uh, faith and form our faith and adopt faith based on the social. And what I mean by that is not so much, hey, those guys are kind of cool, I want to join that club. What I mean by that is the faith is played out in a web of relationships, in a web of friendships that you are drawn to say, oh my goodness, there's some credibility there. Uh, that's attractive. I want that. I have a buddy uh, named Tim uh, who uh, describes his former uh, high school self as, a, as an atheist evangelist. Uh, he, he, said, he's, he, describes himself, he described his former self as kind of cocky and, and kind of you know, rude. He, he, just, he, he had a life goal in high school to go around and find the religious guys and convert them out of their religion. And he would do it. He would just say, you guys are idiots. I mean, seriously, this, you get to know the guy and you'd say, yeah, yeah I see that. He'd say, you guys, you guys check your brains out at the door on, on Sundays and that sort of thing. Um, and so on and so forth. Well, at some po- a, a few later years after high school, I guess after college as well, um, he uh, ran into some hard times. Uh, he lost his job. Uh, he was battling depression. And uh, he was living out of his car. And even that, he got into an accident. And he lost his car. So he was like, he was like in real trouble. And, um, and he had nowhere to go, but there was this Christian family that knew him and said, hey, why don't you come stay with us? And he's like, no, I don't want to do it. Um, he said, I'm going to go, but that doesn't mean I'm more... Sa-. In his head, he's telling the story. He didn't say this to the people, but 
He's like, I'm going to go, but that doesn't mean I'm more sympathetic to what you believe. Don't you think that? All that sort of thing. So he stayed with them. And, you know, he's, as he shares a story, he talks about really taking that relationship in a time of special need for granted. I mean, he was abusing the relationships, even in their own roof, doing a number of things I won't go into, but just really just abusing the relationship. But he, he, he would engage with, the, with the, the father of the house on faith matters. He's like, here, I get to have an opportunity to convert this guy out of his faith. Again, Tim. And he's just like, okay, why do you believe this? And I have this question, and why not? And the guy was just like, look, I, I, don't, I kind of know what you're talking about, but why don't you go talk to the pastor? Maybe he has some answers. And so Tim's like, ooh, I get to convert a pastor out of his faith and that sort of thing. And so he goes and talks to the pastor. And Tim is a really sharp guy, really bright. Goes to the pastor. The pastor's like, he helps him a little bit. But at the end, he, you know, the biggest thing that the pastor does in, in his story is uh, said, well, why don't you got, you're smart. Why don't you look into it? Like, look into it for yourself. You see for yourself. Does it hold up? And Tim was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, and then we're going to talk again. And, um, and so he goes, and, and I really respect him. He, he, he said, I'm going to look at the primary sources. I'm not gonna, I don't want to know what other people say about this. I'm going to look at the primary sources, the Bible, obviously, but other sources at that time. I'm just going to look into it. Long story short, this little intellectual endeavor for Tim actually ended up, he put his faith in Jesus. He came to the conclusion that it's easier based on evidence to believe in Jesus than otherwise. That's Tim's thinking process. And for that part, there was a, there was a place in the story where, where it became emotionally uh, palpable for him. He's just like, oh my goodness, I'm not just learning about a God or the God. I'm learning about the God who is pursuing me. There's an emotional thing. But Tim now, interestingly enough, is a pastor, but he's also an evangelist, which that's not a word I just throw around. I mean, that's a, you know, a big word. Um, but a true evangelist, he's the kind of guy who semi-regularly gets in front of thousands of people who don't know Jesus, telling them about Jesus, like on the San Jose campus. And that, that's Tim. And when he tells his story now, he's like, you know, I really point back to that Christian family took me in. I saw, he didn't see it that way at the time, but he saw the love lived out selflessly. Tim was essentially a Moabite, in a sense, you could say, um, to that family, if you want, um, or, or however you want to see that. Uh, and, and the fam- family just loved and, and that was the, 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 the place where, where God met him through there, and he loved him. Uh, and the family was just like, you know what? They, they, were, they were on to Tim. They're like, hey, we know you're doing this, but we love you. This, this is not what this is all about. Um, this is what Jesus did. Jesus engaged the intellect. He preached sermons where you read the gospel accounts about his life. It, they really make you think. Uh, he engra- engaged the emotional. He touched people's lives personally. He cared about them where they were at, and there was life change for them. But just as much as those two, if not more, as he was befriending folks. I mean, he got the title, Friend of Sinners, which I just love that title because it's deliberate irony as far as I'm concerned. Because the Bible's saying we're all sinners. And Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus came to befriend all of us. That's why this is so important for us here at, the, at, at Current. This is so central to our, vi- our vision. Uh, belong, believe, become. Some of you guys have seen that shirt. By the way, if you want that shirt or the other shirt, you can, it's, we're not, it's not inside or outside or thing. You just will give it away. Um, but the belong, believe, become has become a sort of a rallying cry of our generation of Christ followers of saying the belong is intentionally first. There's a sequence here. That's how Jesus operated. He's let everybody come to me. Everybody. Tax collectors, the, the most greedy people. Pharisees, the self-righteous, stuck-up religious people. The prostitutes. Oh, my goodness. Let them all come to me, he said. 
and he befriended and he loved um, even as he gauged the mind and he gauged the, the heart he befriended um, and that's so important to us here uh, we just want we want to be a culture where you can belong as as we pray you might believe and and, and ultimately become um, there's life-changing power in friendship I mean Clearly, someone like a Naomi loving someone like an Orpah uh, and a Ruth, when she just, I mean, why would she? There's something attractive about that, but when you see what's behind that, God's love, which we'll, we'll get into even more as we move on, uh, there's a beauty and there's attraction there. Um, number two, God works in the two, God works in the hard and the mundane. Uh, we've already seen this in uh, Naomi and Ruth's interactions. I mean, you know, there's, there's, their dialogue is pretty... Uh, straightforward, simple. There's hard, but it's also just uh, just an everyday dialogue in, in cer- certain respects. But then we also pick up the story. Uh, Naomi and Ruth return back to Israel, and they're looking for food. They are poor. They don't have land. They're destitute. And probably because of her older age, Naomi doesn't do this, but Ruth goes out, and she gleans the fields. She's out there picking grain after the harvesters. She's following in their tow to try to see if there's any food left that she can then take home, which is awesome. She was able to do that because of a provision in the Old Testament that went back to the time of Moses. Uh, God said this, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. I love that little last statement, I am the Lord your God. He's like, you better stink and do this. It's like, I'm not messing around. Take care of the poor. Take care of the foreigner who you're not going to want to take care of, who can slip into the cracks of the society system. Leave space. And so God was already thinking about the foreigners long before this, but Ruth was able to be fed because of this. But here's what I'm saying. There's nothing glamorous in her story in picking grain, picking wheat. I mean, what's special about that? That's hard. That's mundane. Uh, this is, uh, here's another way of thinking about it. This is not my insight, uh, one I came across. But when you, when you look at uh, the, the book of Ruth and her story, next to all these other stories we've been looking at, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, you see in Ruth, there's not really this amazing, spectacular miracle. Moses, he had his Red Sea apart. You know, Joshua had... The, the walls of Jericho that they walked around, they came tumbling down. Gideon last week had his fleece. He put the fleece out there and water, all that sort of thing. There's just obvious, clear, spectacular miracles. Ruth had none of that. The other thing we see in all their stories is God is an active role to play in those stories. God came to Moses and said, I'm calling you. God came to Joshua and said, be strong and courageous. The, the angel of the Lord came to Gideon last week. I am with you mighty warrior. God came. That never happens in the book of Ruth. Actually, uh, God is almost, is very rarely mentioned at all in the book of Ruth. I mean, most of it is in this little dialogue that Naomi says, the Lord be with you, the Lord be with you. Um, and yet, this is obviously clearly a sign, this is a, a, a story of God working, because he works in the hard and the mundane. I, I think we can often think that, uh, that God just works in the theatrical, you know, when, when times get hard, God, where are you? Like, would you show up now? Uh, the only thing with that, in, in my humble opinion, is God is always working. He's always at work in, in even the smallest of things, but do, are we looking for it? Or do we even have the lens to see it? 
you know, to Christian friends especially, I want to I say, it, God doesn't just work in the, the like crazy story of, oh, over there, that was amazing. That's how he works. That's, by the way, why I had a little bit of a fear of sharing the story I did last week. If you were here, I talked about how I went to visit a hospital about a, a year ago. You remember the story? I went to the room, and there was this gal, unresponsive, in a coma. I read my Bible, and as I lowered my Bible, she was, like, looking at me. She had come out of her coma. She couldn't yet speak, or, but she, she could obviously hear, and I was just like, whoa! Okay, God's, that seems to me God's working. That's, and there's stories of God working like that. I have stories I could share like that, but the stories that are just everywhere are God working in the mundane and in the heart, like a conversation after church like a conversation over coffee or in, a, in one of our current groups or a smaller setting or at the workplace, earning the right to ask not just how are you doing, but how are you really doing? Uh, Jen and Charlie are, sa- are sadly uh, moving away. Uh, some of you guys know them. They've come from the very beginning. I think the first time they attended was actually our launch day. Um, and uh, they told me the other day, it was actually at the block party, they're like, oh, we gotta, they're moving back up to, Sac- to Sacramento to kind of focus on that wing of their business. And they were telling me uh, the, uh, at the barbecue, they're like, oh, no, we're all getting off teary-eyed. Like, well, Charlie, not so much, but Jen and I. I'm like, oh, she's like, Kern's changed my life. It's like, you've changed our life. And uh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm having a little bit of fun with it, but that's really kind of how it went. And I, she's like, Kern has changed my life. And she, well, the first time she came, they, they got in a flyer right outside the, uh, 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 to their home delivered, and they live like literally right there, like I think the next building over, right there. And so, so they read this flyer like, well, we've always thought we should probably check out church. Um, it's right there. We should probably go. We should probably go. Um, but I, I think Jen's story, if I remember the details, she had a little, the, the, you know, they had some baggage when it comes to church. Actually, I think that's her, her wording of it, but she's like, I'm going to come, and you know what, you know, happened from the point of that to, oh my goodness, like, this has changed my life, this is just like, God's moved in my life, and it's you guys, is what happened in, and has happened in this, and happens in this room, um, I think they sat over there, and folks said, hey, how are you doing, and oh my goodness, Christians aren't the weirdest people on the planet, um, second weird, I don't know, weird, um, but she's like, oh my goodness, like, Okay, and still kind of like cross arms, like, you know, I don't know, um, but little by little, conversation after conversation, getting plugged in, I and mean, she's a photographer, she started doing that, which is awesome, and, um, and uh, the heart, so there's like the more mundane side of the heart, I mean, Charlie uh, had his surgery, if you guys know their story, uh, he hadn't been able to hear, like, almost at all since he was a little kid, like, before he had memory, like, two years old, he, he like, had an accident or something like that, and he could hear again, but that surgery was hard, and he's figuring that out. Their, their work situation has been about the most stressful as it comes. How are you guys doing? How are you doing? Oh, my goodness, this has changed. God works in the mundane and the hard. And the reason I think this is so especially important for us to think about as a church is it's not always in the big, grand, grand it's, 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 it's in the here and the now. And the question is, are we available? Are we engaging? Uh, do we love? It's the smallest of ways that make the biggest of, of impact. God works in the hard and the mundane. And so, uh, you know, I just ask you, how, how could you step into that? How might this look for you? Maybe it's, maybe it's an action step. Maybe it's a shift in, in perspective. Um, third and, and last lesson here, God is in the business of redeeming. Um, 
And then I've, I've added this thought. And he's, he's something he's doing joyfully, even though it's at infinite cost to himself. He's in the business of redeeming. David, where do you get that from the text? Well, Ruth is in uh, the, uh, uh, the field, as it happens to be, gleaning of Boaz. Boaz is this man of, of good character um, back then. And he, uh, and, and he happened to be what was called their kinsman redeemer, or the translation I have uh, now is, is guardian redeemer. Now, what all is going there? There's, there's a little bit going on, I think, that we need to understand to kind of unpack that thought. Um, and there's, there's a number of details here, so I'm going to stick a little bit closer to my notes. Um, but there's property laws back then that allocated property to each tribe, and each family had, tr- had property that would stay with them essentially forever. For all generations, it was, it was on a permanent basis. But sometimes, desperate times called for desperate measures. You could sell it to like get some of that inheritance money so that you could survive. Um, but selling it off was only temporary because every 50 years in the Jewish calendar, they would redeem all debts. Like all debts would be, would be forgiven and all land would be returned to its original owners, including, by the way, uh, or, or if the original owner wasn't still alive, uh, the, the, the heirs. Um, and so you can imagine how the economy of this worked. The closer you were to that 50-year period, the less valuable the land was, and et cetera, et cetera. But if you were on this end of the 50-year period waiting and you had sold your inheritance e.g. Naomi, then it was a long time to wait. And so there was this other provision built into uh, uh, the law that if a man, uh, a married man died without leaving any children, his widow had the right to marry and have children uh, by, this, by, uh, by this, this person who was called the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer would redeem both the property uh, and, and give it back to you, uh, is uh, how it worked. Um, and uh, but there was one stipulation. Again, here's all the details. I'm just trying to stick here. Uh, if uh, if he had children, if the kinsman redeemer had children with this widow, then uh, the children of of that former widow uh, would then receive the property and rights of that uh, marriage. Does that make sense? So the kinsman redeemer in marrying the widow, the kids over here would would get to collect this land, and actually on top of that, these kids. Uh, so it would not be the kinsman redeemer's land, but these kids would actually get some of the land from the kinsman redeemer. This is a really good deal for these. Does that make sense? Um, okay, it's actually really cool when it all comes together. Um, There's a couple. It had to be a close relative of specific limits. Uh, uh, while you could buy it back, oh yeah, I already mentioned that part. Um, and the last obviously thought here is it was expensive. I mean, it's like paying off the mortgage. And if it was as far out as it was undoubtedly for Naomi, this is expensive. So all that's to say is it was really, really long shot. Even though Boaz was the kinsman redeemer potential uh, for Naomi and therefore also Ruth by connection of Naomi, uh, it was a long, long shot. And yet, Naomi couldn't help but think, oh my goodness, might God be in this? Ruth happens to be in the field of Boaz, and Boaz has taken a little eye to Ruth. That's kind of cool. What's going on there? And so she counsels Ruth during the, the there's this feast, the harvest, harvest festival, to go in to uh, 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 Boaz's uh, room at night, actually it was a threshing floor, and to uncover his legs and sleep under there. I don't understand the tradition there, but go there and sleep. I don't, I don't know, and even after reading it, I don't understand the tradition there, but this is a thousand years before Christ written, okay? So you got to understand, we, not all of it's still remembered, um, but she ends up doing that, and uh, he had eaten a lot. He had drank a lot. He, was, he had good sleep, but he was startled in the middle of the night, like, what's going on here? You know, what's happening at my feet? And she, he sees like a woman there, so like back then too, it was like, whoa, okay, any number of bad things could have gone wrong here, okay? Boaz could have done some stuff. Um, 
Instead, he's actually really honored and overwhelmed that she would approach him, that she wouldn't pursue some of the other like young bucks out there, but she'd come to see him. And he was in this feeling of overwhelming love and like excitement. He says, okay. She, she explains to him that he's, he's her kinsman redeemer. He says, okay, I'm going to redeem the land. I'm going to redeem you. Um, I just understand that there's one little drawback, one little potential hang-up. So let me go deal with that. But this is going to happen. That one hang-up happened to be that there was one guy next in line, closer than Boaz, to redeem Ruth. So Boaz, a man of substance, goes to this man in front of all the elders and says, hey, here's this land. Do you want to redeem it? The dude's like, yes, I want to redeem it. I'll take some property. But then Boaz says, okay, okay, you can do that. You just need to understand in doing that, you also have to take care of Naomi and, your, and, and Ruth the Moabite, which I'd never noticed before. I've, I've read Ruth since I was a little kid, and I've never noticed that before. But he, he says, not just Ruth, he says, Ruth the Moabite. And it seems to me what's going on there is he, is he knows that this other guy is going to have like his visceral reaction as a lot of folks in that time would have had toward Moabites and be like, I don't, no, no, can't do that. I don't want to have any part with that. Moabite, no. And of course, the guy says, no, I, I, I released my kinsman redeemer right here. You can have it. And Boaz is just off the charts excited. So he redeems the land, gives it back to Naomi. He marries Ruth. It's this wonderful thing. The townspeople are so ex- excited. The elders are just like, bless you. And the way the story ends is really cool. It ends with the genealogy of Boaz and Ruth being the grandparents of none other than the great King David. Which, how cool is that? For a thousand years, Ruth had the, the greatest honor that she probably could have even dreamed of, of being a part of that legacy. But it gets even better. A thousand years later, that king of David, that king David would have his line, and the, the, the gospel account of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, said the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. And it lists off, genealogy, about 10 verses or so down, it says, it calls out Ruth, Mother, Mother Ruth, uh, when, it, when it comes to her spot in the land. She has that honor. Now, what's going on here? What's going on here is we see that God is not just honoring and blessing her for who she is, but he's actually weaved her into his great story of redemption. Uh, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. The real treasure we lost was not property. The real treasure we lost is a right relationship with God. Judges, book of Judges. Uh, we, we don't deserve to even be in his presence. The things that we do that are hurtful to our relationship with him, to, to others, to ourselves, and yet God would not leave us there. He just had eyes of love so strong for us, he would not leave us be. And so on the cross, he became our kinsman redeemer. Uh, that's what the cross is all about. He redeemed us after living the, left that, uh, living the life that we should have lived but couldn't, and then dying the death that we all deserve on our behalf. He has redeemed all things to himself, which, by the way, include the property-type stuff. I mean, heaven, that's a wonderful thing. But most of all is we get him. I mean, I, I, I really had fun reading about Boaz this time through uh, my study because Boaz is just so elated. He's getting ready to lose a lot of property, a lot of, like, you know, stuff. And yet he's just so overjoyed with what he gets. He gets to marry Ruth. And he didn't just love Ruth lustfully. If he had loved her just lustfully, he could have made that happen in a number of ways. 
He could have, but he didn't. He honored her, he adored her, and he loved her, even the place of like it, it being at cost to him. Well, Jesus is the great bridegroom of the Bible. Uh, and that's actually how it describes it. The end of the Bible is going to end with, uh, ends with a wedding feast. And we, anyone who puts his, uh, their faith in him, are his bride. And so now he loves us. And by the way, even when we were outside and unlovable, even when we were his enemies, he came to us, um, which I just so love. And this is just so timely. Uh, did Ruth deserve God's love? No. Do we deserve God's love? No. But you know how the Bible says it? It says, love the foreigner because you yourself were a foreigner. Love the foreigner, love the immigrant because you yourself, I mean, look, this matters to the Israelites. For I brought you up out of the land of Egyptians. How much more does that matter to us Americans living in the Americas? Um, We are to love the immigrant. Not just a, a pity, you know, piety, proud way of, hey, I love you, but from the heart of, oh my goodness, that is what God's done for me. I must love. I, I came across, uh, Cindy actually sent me this article uh, that's been going around uh, the social media uh, outlets uh, from the Huffington Post, written by uh, a guy named Jeff Cook, called, uh, uh, titled, Why I'm a Racist. Now, this guy is, yeah, he's, he's bold and doing a big old picture of him and his whole family, blonde, blue-eyed, like white dude, saying, why am I a racist? Um, he, he talks about how, I, how he's benefited from what other people, you know, other people's glass ceilings I've taken for granted, this and that. I've lived in privilege. Uh, he, he says it like this um, uh, in summary. He says, to be clear, I live in New Jersey. I'm not someone who has gone their whole life without interacting with people of color. I'm not someone who is solely informed by the media in regard to cultures and races outside my own. I have friends, coworkers, neighbors, mentors, and f- family members who are people of color, but... I am still distant from the racial inequalities that mark their lives. Why I'm a racist, he writes, it doesn't make me evil. It makes me ready for a change. Do you know why this is making its rounds on social media? Because it's so refreshing. I mean, think about all the other things that have to do with race. Typically, what's happening in the social media network, uh, you know, on the news or all that sort of thing. And then somebody saying, oh, my goodness, I am just a racist. Now, this is not to set Jeff Cook up as the hero. That's not my point. But the point is, it's so refreshing because somebody's saying, you know what, I'm done trying to figure out their problems and realize the problems inside me. I did a little bit of searching with Jeff's story. It turns out he's a pastor, and it turns out he actually articulates this, that the, the thrust of that message is really from what we've been talking about today. God's love for Ruth, God's love for the Moabite, God's love for you and me. Um, and he said, you know what, I, I, I can't help but look inside and try to make a change and think about that. Um, I don't know, as we think about this and wrap up in terms of like implications, I don't know what this means for you, and I don't want to presume to tell you what this means for you. I'm a white guy, and I've lived in a lot of privilege. But I, so, but I do know it starts with our hearts. It starts with where are we at, how does this affect us, and how can we join alongside God in the redeeming of all things, which includes Racism, prejudice, as well as taking care of the poor when they're easily overlooked. Redeeming all things to himself. Because we ourselves weren't worthy, and yet he chose to redeem us is the promise. Um, So I encourage you just to 
to be thinking about this. Ruth is just such a powerful story of his love in this regard. It happens through friendships in the most mundane and hard ways, but receiving his redemptive work and releasing that and extending that to others. Let's pray.